0: We're getting, you're not going to say Elf on the Shelf, are you? <laughs> I, I wish I wish that I won't. But now you've put it in my head, so oh. don't be surprised if it comes out at some point. <laughs> hey everyone, Adam here from the C Lab Podcast. I'm proud to announce that I've just released a new book. It's called Customer Education: Why Smart Companies Profit by Making Customers Smarter. You can actually find it now on Amazon.com, in ebook or in print format. Uh, You could also do bit.ly slash customer education. Made you an easy little bit.ly link. So I'd really appreciate it if you pick a copy up and let me know what you think. Thanks, everyone.
1: It's January 9th, 2019, and welcome to episode 11 Again, we're in the double digits of C-Lab, the Customer Education Lab, where we explore how to build customer education programs, experiment with new approaches, and exterminate the myths and bad advice that stop growth dead in its tracks. I am Dave Darrington. And I'm Adam Evermescu. And on this wonderful January 9th, it is National Static Electricity Day. Zap! Zap. I wish I had a balloon. I would do that little hair thing, you know? Get your hair standing I have in. a balloon
0: right outside this room, yeah. <laughs> so we'll talk- we'll, 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 fix, we'll fix it in post. Awesome. So what are we going to talk about today, Adam? <laughs> well, this is going to be part two in our series on content. So in the last episode, we actually talked about doing content discovery. And I think new customer education leaders often don't have a strong background in content development. So they actually end up producing content that might please their stakeholders, uh, but it doesn't actually teach what it's trying to teach.
1: Hmm. And a lot of time, you know, we put a bunch of content together into a slide deck, right? We call that training. But does that really lead to knowledge retention or any kind of behavioral change? I think that sounds like a hypothesis in the making. Agreed. Well, let's get into it. Uh, today... We're going to actually discuss a few failed hypotheses around content development. These are things that we've been asked to do, right? Somebody else said, hey, Adam, can you go get a training module on such and such? Okay. Yes, sir. <laughs> and, and we've all certainly tried in our careers, but you know, they just don't lead to effective learning. All right. So maybe we can start by defining what effective
0: learning actually is and then share some of the myths and hypotheses that just don't support the definition.
1: Yeah, that sounds really good. So I think one component of effective learning is that the learner actually carries it out in the training session or wherever it's delivered. They have to remember all of this content. You know, what what is it I learned in that? Did I sit there for a day, two days, a week? Oh, my gosh
0: yeah, did I actually retain it? That, that, that's great. And I also think that effective learning has to lead to some sort of behavior change. So it, it motivates you or it fills a skill gap so that you're doing something
1: different after the learning experience than what you were doing before. And that's key. So what are the bad hypotheses that we follow so often, you know, the ones that lead to really poor, really ineffective training?
0: All right, let's get into it. And, you know, as, as you're saying that, I you know, I think sometimes... Even a bad hypothesis is just the absence of a hypothesis. We're under so many bad uh, models and bad myths and misconceptions about what training is or what learning is that I think our default model sometimes is just so broken. (laughs) Um, And so we make assumptions about what training should be, and then we end up going and doing things that are like that without really ever dissecting why they might be a bad idea. Yeah, this is a really good topic to start from. So so where do we begin? Well, let's start with one really common one. Uh, it's, it's what I call, well, it's not just me. A lot of people call it this, the, the sage <laughs> on the stage. And, and this is the idea that if you put a really intelligent subject matter expert in front of learners and, and just let them do their thing, or, or as I describe it, just ask them to open up their heads and take their brain out and, and jam it into the learner's
1: head, then learning will occur. Hmm. Okay. Well, yeah. let, let's, let's pare that down into the core. Why does that not work? Well,
0: I think a lot of the time when you walk into an organization with relatively immature customer education, you can actually see this happening. You have your product experts leading trainings, and a lot of the time those trainings are one-on-one with customers, but sometimes they might even be webinars or something like that. And when you actually observe those trainings, they're packed so densely with content that the expert is just running through all of the content without much interactivity and without really stopping to check to see if that knowledge is being absorbed or if that knowledge is even useful to the customer, or if they're gonna do anything with it. So they're basically just delivering a lecture. Have you seen
1: this, Dave? Yeah. And and let me elaborate on that a bit. You know, like we, we might ask what's wrong with that. So I used to be, I used to do I teach at a university level. So, you know, first of all, customer education isn't like school. You know, in school, I'm going to put back on my professor hat or whatever it is we put on. And it's like a graduation cap, right? Yeah, indeed. All that really cool with little the tassel. thing. Yeah, With the tassel, it's black. Mm-hmm. Um, I could go in to a classroom and I could lecture about whatever I want. But at the end of the day... Those students in the classroom were responsible for studying material, reading a book, taking my assignments, and doing what they need to do to get a grade, right? And their, their GPA really has long-reaching consequences for them. So you're saying the, the stakes
0: are a little bit different when you're actually in a classroom and you have a professor who lectures? Very much so. I mean, you're
1: not really looking at the same thing because, um, well, I'll, I'll let you take it forward, but you know, it's apples and oranges. There you're looking at a grade. What is it that we're looking for out of customer education? Yeah, I mean, the way I think about the key difference between a
0: lecture in a university and customer education is it all comes down to motivation. Mm having having your GPA on the line is one of the biggest pieces of extrinsic motivation that ever there is. If you don't inherently and intrinsically care about learning the subject matter, you've still got this thing that is threatening to uh, not give you a degree. And that's going to be one of the most powerful things that you can earn in your entire lifetime. So, you know, for for customers, they don't really have that, right? They don't have intrinsic motivation to learn how to use your product. They're not naturally curious about it. So you can't really design your content as if they are, but they also don't necessarily have extrinsic motivation. Like they don't have grades. uh, You're not paying them to do it a lot of the time. And unless your company actually has some sort of lever like that, where there's a provision in the contract that, you know, if all their users don't get certified, they don't get to launch or they're going to lose money or something like that. There's no real motivation for them to struggle through bad training. They're just not going to do it. They're not going to take it.
1: Yeah, so, so you would say then, and I think I've read this in various different texts and, and bodies of work on it, that it, the grade, extrinsic motivator, is a bit of a risk. So a lot of people don't necessarily have anything on the line unless maybe their job – like I, I know working with partner enablement, it's a whole different matter because a partner, that's their job they have to learn this because they have to support other people. But if you're in right. often the terms there are very explicit where you are going to hold your partners to a certain standard of knowledge and certification. Certainly. And we struggle with this all the time in customer success and onboarding and trying to get people to use the app. A lot of the time just don't care unless they have a manager that's barking at them to get this done and to know it then, you know, their motivators may be their might their job might be on the line if it's really critical. So it's a different universe.
0: Yeah, so when you think about it for customers, though, and you, you think about the fact that training for them is, you know, it's sort of optional, even if you, you say that it's mandatory, mm-hmm. you really have to do a better job of not just lecturing at them, but really moving from that sage on the stage to uh, a guide on the side. We're getting, you're not going to say elf on the shelf, are you? I I wish I wish that I won't, but now you've
1: put it in my head. So don't be surprised if it comes out at some point. (laughs) So how do you do that? What are the what are the key things that to have a guide on your side, uh, Adam, that that you would you would propose? Well, a lot of it is about changing the role
0: of the facilitator. So instead of assuming that we're going to have a lecturer who is an expert who's going to do 80% of the talking, start to think of it as this is someone who's going to facilitate our our customers' learning. And they're maybe going to do 20% of the talking. So they should really be, I mean, obviously, they got to know their stuff when they're uh, presenting in a classroom or when they're facilitating training. But it shouldn't really be about presenting and it shouldn't be about proving what they know. It should be about getting the customers to reflect on what they know. And I think one of the reasons that this doesn't really happen, especially with subject matter experts, is this thing called the curse of knowledge. Hmm. Um, and this is uh, – there, there, there were some great scientific experiments that uh, were conducted to prove that this phenomenon exists. Uh, I read about them in a book called Made to Stick. There's a book called Make it Stick and a book called Made to Stick. And they both have scientific experiments <laughs> in them, so I get them confused. But this is Made to Stick by Dan and Chip Heath. Um, And basically what this phenomenon is is when when you know something, when you're an expert, it's almost impossible for you to go back to being in a novice state. You just can't remember what it was like to learn this subject for the first time. So you really have to work with your subject matter experts to gut check their assumptions, uh, work with them on not having as much jargon in their sessions and the things that seem basic to them but really aren't that basic.
1: That's really cool. You know, this reminds me. this This weekend, I was just I'm skiing. I'm taking skiing lessons for the first time. You know, old guy. Wow. I, feel, I feel a little chagrin. You know, I've I did it once ten years ago, but I could see that like the really good ski instructors almost are empathetic. That like the ski instructor that I had this weekend was this gentleman was 85 years old. Totally amazed me. And, you know, he, he actually didn't use jargony things. You know, he, he didn't pretend that I knew all this stuff. And it act, he acted like he understood what it was like to be a beginner. That's really amazing. Yeah, that, that's part of our job in
0: designing content, right, is to not just knowledge dump onto our learners uh, as if, you know, by, by being experts, they're going to become experts too. It's really about empathizing with them and, and going back to what is it like to learn this for the first time. Right. And to do that, that also means we got to get constant feedback from our customers about the content and about the pace. So, you know, if you're not doing any sort of surveys or knowledge checks or even stopping periodically throughout your training to, to get their reactions, then you're going to have a really hard time figuring out whether you're doing it right. Right, totally. So I also recommend not just, you know, gauging their uh, satisfaction with the training and gauging how they're doing, but really deliberately working interactivity into it. So, deliberately create opportunities for learners to reflect to speak up to ask questions and to practice their skills
1: that's really that's actually vital and and the way i like to conduct live training and actually uh, the the way i used to teach in university is that i had a lot of activities so i would lecture only for like I used to do four-hour classes once a week. It was brutal. Um, But I would maybe lecture for 45 minutes. And the rest of the time was all of us doing things together or, you know, group exercises and things like that. And that made it a lot more sticky and, and dare I say, fun. Because when I'm just up there talking, number one, I'm going to be exhausted. Number two, people are checking out. Yeah.
0: And, you know, sometimes with, with the skills that you want to see someone practice, like nobody likes role plays. I mean, very few people like role plays, but sometimes once you get into actually doing that simulated activity or actually doing the thing that you're supposed to be doing on the job, you know, even if you don't like role playing in training, the act of going through that um, activity and maybe failing at it and maybe being in that uncomfortable state, but getting feedback on it, it's really going to help you improve and be more comfortable when you're taking that skill out of the classroom and back into your job. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so you know, you you got to do that. You got to build in interactivity. I, I also think that along those lines, one simple thing you can do is, uh, first of all, pause for questions. But when you are pausing for questions, there's one simple trick. You, you remember those old ads that are they're not even that old. A couple of years ago, they're like the one weird trick that reduced my hair loss. <laughs> well, this is the this is the one weird trick that that makes uh, pausing for questions better. Dave, what, what question do you usually hear asked when someone pauses for questions? Where's the bathroom? Where's the bathroom? <laughs> no, I'm sorry. What does the, what does the facilitator usually say?
1: Um, okay. Uh, does anybody have any questions? Yep. Any, any, questions? any questions? Does anyone any have questions? any questions? And, 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 and what happens? Says, no, nothing. You get crickets.
0: Nothing, right? Silence. Where's the bathroom? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, have you ever tried asking what questions do you have? Well, that's a different way to put it. That's an open-ended question. Right. And here's why this is one weird trick. I guarantee you, if you ask what questions do you have, it reduces that anxiety because now people expect, oh, well, of course I'm going to have questions. What, what questions do I have? And you're going to get more questions that way. Ooh.
1: Well, that's definitely something that we should all do an experiment, maybe an A-B test. You can definitely A, B test that you, you can even, yeah, you could try it
0: even within, um, the same training session, right? For some of your, your pause for questions, ask any questions. And for some ask, what questions do you have and see what pops up?
1: Certainly. Maybe even some leading type questions like, Hey, I know I covered this really quickly. Like, what are the things, what are the questions you might have about X? And, you know, I find this challenging. What do you think about it? Maybe trying to lead them down the road.
0: Totally. And, you know, then we also talked about the fact that we really have to understand whether this learning is appropriate for our learners, whether it resonates with them, and whether it's going to help them do their job. So what are some of the ways that you, you've measured that, Dave? Oh,
1: goodness. Well, there's a lot of ways. I mean, we could go back to the concept of the smile sheet, you know, when we're doing conventional, old-style mm-hmm. training classes. Uh, nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with that. But quite frankly, I've done quite a bit of on-demand, more than I ever thought I would do, Um what I always do in that is having little tiny NPS surveys. Uh, let's say you finish a module. You'll immediately get at the end of that module uh, a, a quick question or two about, hey, how would you rate this? Zero to ten. Give me some feedback. What did you like? What did you not like? What did I, what did I succeed at? Is there anything I missed? And yep. those are really great to get into a, a system and then just start to pour over them. Because, you know, going back to a previous podcast, we talked about Sam and Addy and stuff. If you're doing quick loops and you're getting out there, like, here's one of my favorite things to do. I will always release small modules and get it out there publicly first and invite people in a beta context. And then I'll I'll say, hey, I'm going to give this. You're going to be the first ones on this. But what it's going to cost you is feedback. I expect everybody to come back to me and and, and be you know, brutally honest. And that really helps.
0: Yeah. And and one other thing that I would add to that is when you're doing that survey, or when you're doing that smile sheet, or whatever it is, obviously, you're going to get a lot of really good information about the content and the delivery that's going to help you improve it. But one other thing that I always want to know is, are the learners going to actually take this and do something with it? So I like to ask that question both in the live trainings that I do and in the surveys afterwards. So in a live training, I might ask something like, uh, you know, now that we're at the end of our, our training time together, I would love for everyone to tell me one thing that you will be doing differently as a result of this training. And that kind of gets people to commit to things a little bit because if you if you say it, there's a psychological principle of consistency and commitment that kicks in. And now, just by saying that you're going to do something, you're actually going to be more likely to do it.
1: All right. So, well, I told Adam that you know I was going to go home and try this, and I and I did.
0: <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Exactly. And and then on the uh, on the post-training survey, I might ask a question like, you know, on a scale of uh, one to four, how likely am I to apply what I learned on the job, just to see. You know, if if the person is more likely to do that, or if they think they're more likely to do that. Totally.
1: Well, I think you've wrapped up sage on the stage, elf on the shelf, guide on the side, pretty well. So, Adam, let's transition to the next topic. And that, you know, what is it? What's the next big content development myth that you find to be Uh, true? Well, I'm having a blast on this cast. So let's uh, let's move on from (laughs) that and
0: talk about. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> let's let's talk about another big myth. I think there's there's an idea of content first, and I'm defining this against the idea of learner first. Okay. And so this is something again. You can walk into an organization and diagnose whether your training and whether your education is content first. So, what do you
1: mean by content first? Is that okay? I'm just ju- making a volume of material. And, and just getting it out there and, uh, you know, don't really have any guidance on that?
0: Yeah, the failed hypothesis here is uh, if a training includes all the important content that a customer needs, and I'm putting needs in air quotes, mm-hmm. can you see my air quotes? I can. All right. Ooh, in your mind. Uh, and then it is a more valuable training, right? If we include all the important content that a customer needs, then it's more valuable training. Hmm. And that's
1: not true though is it dave i i don't think so for 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 many reasons like you know if i just put the kitchen sink down how are you going to digest that right
0: absolutely so how do you how do you know if you walk into an organization how do you know if they're really taking a content first not a learner first approach what do you usually see there
1: well, in a content approach, I might see a team sitting down saying, well, what, what is it we've got? You know, what, what do we want? What do we want to talk about? The we is the key, right? It's us yeah. first. It's like, okay, we're going to do, do this. We're going to do this. We think our customers want this, but then it's we think we want. And, you know, something that, that I've done in the past and I'm actually doing again is I'll actually canvas key customers you know, and a diverse set of them and say, what do you need what, what is it that, mm-hmm. and, and I actually, at Gainsight, when I was there, one of the coolest things that I had the opportunity to do was I build a, built a survey, and I, I gave that survey to all our internal people, a lot of our customer success managers, and then to our customers. And then I compared the two to see, and, and that really steered our direction much more to those gaps and the things that the learners said we don't understand this, or if we're struggling with this, or we don't have anything on this. And it made it very learner-centric.
0: Yeah, I love that. Actually, just starting with the learner. Mm-hmm. And you know, when you're even designing content, sometimes I see people start with a big content outline or an agenda. And you know, when you, sometimes when you see that word agenda, that is almost a tip-off. That we're just thinking about how are we going to fill our time with content and not what is the learner actually going to need to be able to do in this session. And so if you're walking into an organization and you see trainings that run through a bunch of different topics in one sitting and they have these really packed agendas and the topics don't really have much to do with each other um, or if you see a bunch of different content that's addressed to different audiences on your customer side at the same time and a lot of the time, they're just running out of time, right? Their, their content is so packed in that they just run out of time. You don't really feel in that scenario like you even have time to add in the interactivities that we talked about in the last mm-hmm. myth, mm-hmm. right? You're like, how am I even going to put in interactivity? I've got all this content to run through. Yeah, so, that's a lot. Yeah. I mean, so, so, like you said, instead of taking the content first approach, maybe back up and ask yourself, what does the learner need to be able to do after this training? And and also, is this the right time for them to be learning all of this?
1: Yeah. Let, let me tackle this a little bit. You know, like I totally get it, and I totally agree. And what? And I, I I'm going to admit that I've done this. I went in, I had the kitchen sink, I had everything and it said, you know, we've all done this. Eight hours, I'm gonna pack this into your head and I lecture the entire time. And people walk out like, oh my head hurts, my head's spinning and and then, then I changed, right? And like one of the next points is that, you know, it's not helpful for somebody to learn everything about your project. I'm sorry, everything about your product on day one. They're not gonna remember this stuff, right? and that's back to your curse of knowledge concept that you talked about earlier. You know, you know well, what? Well, I can't, I can't take credit for it, of but. Of course, uh, I'm, li- I'm gonna attribute it to you right now. Because <laughs> you're the last one I heard it from. Um, mm, plagiarism. Plagiarism. You know advanced feature acts is important. But if your learner isn't going to set it up during the training or immediately after, uh, and, Maybe you just want to skip it. Now, I've, I've gone and I've had all this stuff and I talk about all these things. And you know what? I get that if you're working with a team that's very new to customer education or very new to training to begin with, I've had people in my organization say, oh, you need to cover this, you need to cover this, you need to cover this, and you need to cover this. And I'm like, no, just stop. What we're going to do is we're going to focus on, uh, again, let me go back to the skiing thing. I love to take other trainings and learn things. This ski instructor I talked to the other day, he he said, look, you know, I don't really have an agenda. This is about you. My goal, you see the top of that hill over there? You see where the ski lift goes? I'm going to get you up there in seven weeks. And it's like, how are we going to do it? Oh, okay, well, that's really great. Today, Dave, we're going to learn how to put our skis on, and we're going to learn how to walk in them, and we're going to do a little bit of uh, moving around in them. And that's it. So, yeah. so that's like lesson one. I got comfortable, comfortable with the, with the learning environment. And that is the snow, the skis, you know, the instructor, my classmates. So to the point is like, we can't teach everything at once because people are going to, their brains are going to explode.
0: Yeah. He's not teaching you like the double black diamond stuff just because it's important. Right. When people start saying you need to include this because it's important. Well, you say no. I say Why? And and I almost get obnoxious about it sometimes because I really <laughs> want to know why. Why is it Im- – not not why is it important because we can agree it's important, but why is it important for them to learn this today? Mm, that's a good question to ask. Because there, there's risk in doing that. And, and I think the biggest risk that we solve as instructional designers is to reduce cognitive load because the more we include in our content, ironically, the less likely people are to remember it. Ooh. A- at a certain point – we only hold so many things in our working memory before they uh, – this is unscientific – but before they, they, they essentially just fall out. So
1: no, no, including no. too
0: much content is actually going to lead to more cognitive overload, and we won't end up learning what we're supposed to.
1: No, I've got a great, I've got a great um, reference for you. So Rafe Koster, um, he, he's written a, a couple of books on game design. And one of the things that I, I – I think the book was called Theory of Fun really good book really short and an awesome read and actually i think relevant to customer education because you have to have fun the thing he's noted in that text was that human beings can remember about 5 to 9 things they can hold 5 to 9 different things in their head at any given time beyond that they start slipping they start losing them so that's really a kind of a good you know psychometric indication of what your learners should be you know tasked with. You can't have cognitive load that goes to 12, 15, 20. If you're over nine, you're probably done. Yeah, there's actually a pretty old research paper out
0: there that a lot of this is, uh, work is based on. I think it's it's called The Magic Number 7 Plus or Minus 2. It's got a really, really cool title. Yeah, perfect. Yeah. And, and, and so when you're doing that and you're actually trying to think, what what are the you know seven plus or minus two things that we want to keep in people's heads um, and that would be really valuable for them to walk out of the training with? We can't just think about what content is important. We have to think about what behavior changes need to happen at this point, during this training, at this time, and and what are the skills that you would actually test the learner on. Now, I see this all the time where people want to include content, but they wouldn't want to test the learner on it, or they don't even know how to test the learner on it because the goal is like, know that this is important. Well, how do I test you on if you know that something is important? I can't. So sometimes it's helpful to actually start from the point of what would you test or certify them on? Because even if you're not actually going to test or certify them, you can still use that as the standard for what to include or to exclude from your training. Because if it's not important to test, it's not important to teach. It's a really good point. Really good point. Yeah. Yeah. And and I don't know about you, Dave, but I run into organizations all the time who have these bloated 101 trainings, but they don't really know what their intermediate or advanced courses should be. And, and hell, I've done this in my own trainings where I've done these super thorough 101. You're going to learn everything about the product on day one. um, But then I'm thinking in my head, well, I'm going to make an advanced course, but I have no idea what that content is. I I feel like I have to go out and find it. Um, But really, I think it's lurking in the bloated 101 training. Because this stuff that's, that's in there about your more advanced features or more advanced techniques or use cases should actually just be delivered later in the onboarding or, or maybe even post-onboarding when the learner is actually ready to take
1: action on it. Totally. Well, I think, Adam, you know, I would challenge you on only one thing. I think it, if you're new, right, if you start, you come into an organization, and you're new to customer education to begin with, so you, you haven't done it for years like you and I and others in our market space have, it's okay It's okay to sit down and say, I'm going to gather everything at once. And, in fact, I've done this a couple times. But after time, I realized, well, I built it all. Now I'm going to hold back and look at what I got. So you might run through that 101 a couple of times with some betas, some like a closed beta with a limited number of people involved, and they will tell you, dude, I'm full. (laughs) <laughs> after a certain point, yeah, and and that's where you can say I'm going to cut it here. This is going to go to advanced. This is going to go into the intermediate, and then you're not you're not wasting any time because you've already built that. You just push it over to the side. So that's one of the techniques. Yeah, well, use. frankly, I, I still I still do that,
0: right? Like I will I will build kind of a 101 curriculum, and I will always end up noticing that I've put too much in there, and and I have to make that decision. I, I did that at Checker even when I built our learning center um, a couple of months ago. So, yeah, certainly, even if you've been doing this for a while, you can never make the assumption that you're going to get the content exactly right on the first try. You're, you're only going to know when you start putting it in front of customers and getting that feedback. Absolutely.
1: Well, that seems like a good breaking point. Why don't we go ahead and summarize this week's lesson and wrap it up with a clear call to action? So, like we always do, I encourage you to get out a piece of paper, uh, maybe a whiteboard, whatever, whatever you're going to write it down on, and you know again, if uh, if you're just walking into a new customer education function, here's some things to investigate. And Adam, why don't you lead us through this?
0: All right. So a few things to investigate. Going uh, a call back to last time, we're going to be investigative journalists. Uh, number one, how is training done at your organization today? Who delivers it? How do they deliver it? Uh, another thing to look at is is that training engaging or interactive? So. Just watch that training and participate in that training as the learner. How would you feel if you were the customer? How many topics are covered? And and does the content align with what the learner actually needs to do? Or is there a bunch of extraneous content in there? Uh, Then think about measurement. Are you measuring the learner's reactions to your course? How are you measuring that? Um, Is that feedback giving you meaningful feedback that you can actually use to iterate on the content over time? And then finally, in terms of measurement, are you actually measuring the behavioral outcomes from that course, whether you're asking learners what they, they think they're going to do afterwards or whether you're actually measuring that behavior change. And that's all going to help you move from this idea of content first, sage on the stage, to something that is truly interactive and meaningful and, and will be more likely to actually lead to behavior
1: change on the other side. Well, this is fabulous, Adam. That's And I think actually it's pretty straightforward. Um, uh, although... Again, you're coming into this for the first time, or you've been around for a little time, a little bit, and you need to advance. Great stuff. So, do your homework, gang, and let's close this out by saying if you want to learn more and we have a podcast website that's at customer.education and in fact you could just type that into most modern browsers it's going to figure out the HTTP stuff for you there you're going to find some of our blogs all of our links to our podcast where you can subscribe and download on iTunes or anything else that you want and as we develop it lots of other really fabulous material and Please, if you have found value in this podcast, we compel you, please share with your friends, your peers, over beers, with your network, and help us find the others. Because we know there's a lot of us out there, and we all need to band together. So on Twitter, I am at Dave Darrington. And I am at Avromescu. And to our audience, thanks for
0: joining us. Go out, educate, experiment, and find your people. Thanks, everybody.